Hello, everyone, and welcome to Headwise, the weekly podcast and videocast of the National Headache Foundation. I'm Dr. Lindsay Weitzel. I am the founder of Migraine Nation, and I have a history of chronic and daily migraine that began at the age of four. I am excited to tell you that I am here today with Dr. Tim Smith. Hi, Dr. Smith. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having me again, and thank you for everything you do for our our uh, headache uh, constituency out there. It's a lot of uh, great information, and I know everyone appreciates it. Well, thank you for being here. We're always honored when we have Dr. Smith. We bring him on for our monthly news episodes where we have so many updates to tell everyone about. It's very exciting. He is a regular on our show because of his extensive experience with clinical trials with migraine medications, et cetera. He is the CEO of Study Metrics Research, and he is also a board member of the National Headache Foundation. So we have lots to report to you today, so we're going to get right to it. Among our announcements are four new data alerts related to headache and migraine, etc. Um, we're going to start with one having to do with the CGRP medications. We have actually been waiting for some time for a study that would compare our various monoclonal antibodies against CGRP for migraine head to head so that we might be able to compare their safety and efficacy, et cetera. Um, we do have one of those to report today. It is not maybe the most robust study we've ever reported. It's a little bit small, but Dr. Smith, what can you tell us about this new study? Uh, I think it compares about three of these medications for us. Right. It, uh, it compares uh, iranumab or amavig with uh, freminazumab or ajovi and galconazumab or imgality. So these are the three subcutaneous injectable monoclonal antibodies. And we, as you pointed out, we don't have head-to-head -head data to compare these. People many times will compare the data from the different labels in the in, in the uh, the FDA approved information, the studies that were submitted for their approval. And, you know, that's what we have and people can draw their conclusions from it. This was uh, an Italian study that was done at a reputable, you know, uh, headache uh, place in Italy. Uh, and it's not, um, it's not a prospective head-to-head -head study. It's not randomized. It's uh, but it uh, did compare similar populations, albeit, them, albeit small. It was a total of 140 patients that were screened uh, into the study. And mm -hmm. this was called a retrospective analysis. So we took data from, from their medical records and uh, were able to do some analyses because they have a very structured way of enrolling uh, patients in the clinic there. And they see them at regular intervals and they capture the same data Midas scores, my, migraine days, and those kinds of things. And so they were able to, after a period of time, it wasn't quite a year, but they had uh, similar populations of patients. So baseline data looked similar, and they were able to compare the uh, across the three different molecules. Okay. And so- What the did they find? They were, <laughs> the results showed that they were very similar. So, you okay. know- uh, uh, not surprising, I suppose, but uh, there wasn't a clear winner in uh, in this study. If the study had been bigger and prospectively done, we might have seen a clear winner. But okay. if it's bigger, then the effect size is smaller. So it, it becomes 
less relevant to do bigger and bigger, bigger studies, uh, although you can prove a statistical correlation. I don't want to get too far into the statistical methodologies of it, but it is what it is. It's a small study, well done in retrospective data, and uh, showing that from an adverse event perspective and from an effectiveness perspective, there was not really a significant difference in the three molecules according to this analysis. Okay. All right. Well, good to know for now. That's really our first bit of data we've seen comparing them. And for now, we don't seem to have anything standing out uh, among our monoclonal antibodies for migraine. Our next study we're going to move to is actually a GPANT study. It's looking at one of our GPANT medica medications, excuse me, that's already available. This is another new data announcement we have today. It's looking at UbrogePant or Ubrelvi. Uh, it's been tested in a new manner in this study, meaning the timing of the medication. Uh, they, they gave it at a different time in this particular study. This was called the prodrome study. What can you tell us about this one? Well, I think the name gives it away. It's, it's about Sorry, prodrome. sorry. I, I stole your thunder. <laughs> Most of our, no, no, it's okay. Most of our viewership, uh, you know, understands what the prodrome is. Um, and a lot of people are, even if you're, if you don't have migraine or don't know someone who has migraine, a lot of people are familiar with what the aura is. And that's usually a visual or other neurologic disturbance, uh, that will herald the onset of an attack within an hour. But these prodromal symptoms are, uh, other more vague or, um, insidious kinds of, uh, symptoms that may, uh, start uh, even as much as a day before a migraine attack, the pain part of the attack actually begins. And what we uh, looked at, uh, what this study was looking at was was what would happen if you treat during that time. And, mm -hmm. and historically, researchers have tried to look at this before, and it's always difficult because if you treat treat a patient who doesn't have a migraine and then they don't have a migraine, did you really do anything? you know, becomes mm -hmm. the issue. And, and that's, that's always, um, you know, that's been the criticism for these kinds of studies, but this is a well-done study where they identified patients who could reliably, at least 75% of the time, uh, have, would have migraine attacks within an out one to six hours following onset of these more insidious symptoms. And uh, you can read various accounts of what the usual prodrome symptoms are the ones that uh, showed up in this study uh, at least 30% of the time or more were things like sensitivity to light, fatigue, neck pain, sensitivity to sound, and, and also dizziness. Um, and I think we recognize that some of those symptoms are actually symptoms of migraine, uh, but we're not talking about migraine pain that's accompanied by the light noise sensitivity or nausea. This is where patients will inexplicably have nausea as much as six hours prior to onset mm -hmm. of their recognizable migraine study. And so 60% of 50, 60% of people are said to have a prodrome, uh, recognizable prodrome. Uh, but we feel like there may be a lot of people who have not really paid attention. They sort of kind of have days they don't feel so good and they don't put it together with their migraine attacks. But this study actually prospectively identified those people that have the not feeling so good that actually would reliably predict 
the onset of a migraine attack within six hours. And then they put them into a study where they treated um, either with the placebo or with Ubralvi. And then they crossed them over. You know, the patients came back in for a clinic check and then they gave them the other treatment. So they got both right. treatments, but they it was blinded to the assignment. And so patients right. couldn't uh, couldn't know which one was which because they were I looked identical and and that and that sort of thing. And so for these patients that had a 75% of could could actually identify reliably onset of prodromal symptoms that heralded a migraine 75% of the time, what the study showed is that uh, almost half the time if they took the ubralvi during the prodrome and before the migraine attack started, they could prevent the development of a moderate to severe uh, migraine attack uh, almost half the time, uh, 45 and point something percentage of the time. So, and that was highly statistically significant compared to placebo. And so the, these are the first and best data that we've seen that look at this uh, phenomenon of treating during the migraine prodrome. Right. It is very interesting. It did not necessarily, the study was not able to tell us that whether or not the medication worked better if you took it in the prodrome, correct? Right. Um, unfortunately, we, it did not get to that point, but it was able to stop uh, the migraine before the pain phase started, I think, in some cases. I think is, this is what we're trying to get to here with a medication treatment by being able to take it in the prodrome. Um, so, so this is in interesting and exciting information for those of us with migraine, um, especially if, if we are good at predicting the migraine before the pain phase hits. So I thought that was a very exciting study. It was well done and it sounded like it took a lot of work to carry it out. <laughs> it did take a lot <laughs> of work. We, yes, we did the, the study in my clinic and it was, it was, it was, yeah. uh, it was, part of it was work. Yeah. Yes. So um, the next uh, announcement we have is a device announcement, and it is related to a device that is already available to us that many of us know about. It's the Nerivio. It's the one that goes on our arm. Um, so it's, it's a very popular device, and it has received a new clearance from the FDA. Um, many of us know it's worn on the upper arm, and it is operated through an app on our smartphone. So, um, Dr. Smith, what new information do we have uh, for our use of the Nerivio device? Right. So we've covered the Nerivio device before, and I think most right. of our viewership is familiar with it. It's what we call remote electric, uh, electronic uh, neurostimulation or REN therapy, R-E-N mm -hmm. therapy. And um, it's previously already FDA approved for... Uh, abortive therapy, and it's actually approved right. for adolescents as well as abortive mm -hmm. therapy for migraine. And they uh, conducted uh, a, a large study uh, showing effectiveness and high degree of safety and using it regularly as a preventive. And so this is not just a study announcement. This is actually an FDA approval announcement that they've done. They published their study results and um, it was a well-done study. They did the usual thing, even though this was not a medication study. They did start with a baseline, uh, you know, capture. So they get their, their baseline migraine frequency numbers uh, for this population of patients, had them track the electronic diaries through the treatment periods. 
and then they could compare the the frequency of, of migraine attacks after institution of the regular use of the device uh, to their their uh, pre-implementation numbers. And basically, uh, to cut to the chase, what the the uh, information showed was about there was about a four day um, improvement uh, in migraine days compared to baseline. And the placebo group only had a 1.3 uh, day improvement. So when we, not that we really compare studies across, you know, different populations, right. it's not a head-to-head -head study, but if you look at the other data that have been reported for preventive uh, interventions, the, these are, are quite good results to have a, right. a four-day, you know, if you're going from, you know, six migraine days per month to two, that's substantial, yeah. especially if they're bad, and if compared to placebo. And so a lot of our studies, we look at the placebo response rates are kind of high too, you know, and that's always a perplexing thing for us. And and people always subtract the difference between the placebo from the from the active treatment arm. And there's some problems with doing that uh, methodologically. But uh, if you do that with this one, this is these were good results for a, a device that doesn't involve taking a medication and can be easily mm -hmm. used, operated right. by the phone. You know, we, we talked about it before. So interesting, right. and it's FDA approved now as a preventive. So that's a good thing. Right. So that is very exciting. And that is uh, one of the options that we have for people, younger people too, for those of us that have children with migraines. So we do love talking about those options. Um, yeah. We. We are going to move on to uh, a study that was published last month um, on intranasal ketamine. This can be a controversial topic. Um, it's it's it has ketamine does have the possibility to be used as a drug of as abuse a drug of abuse. So some people think it's controversial. Um, and we actually have a podcast coming up later this month on the use of ketamine. In the treatment of migraine, it can be used inpatient, uh, outpatient, and in this case, we are talking about a recent study on intranasal ketamine. So uh, tune in if this is something that you would like to learn about or you've heard about. We will be having another episode on this medication. Um, and in this case, this was a study uh, for refractory migraine, which really this medicine is mostly used for people who really have chronic debilitating refractory migraine. Um, so Dr. Smith, um, this particular study on intranasal ketamine, what did they find? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, this is, a, as you pointed out, uh, you know, the, the use of uh, ketamine for, for um, difficult migraine, chronic migraine, it, it is somewhat controversial. Uh, for those of our listeners who don't know what ketamine is, it's a, it is a, it's basically an anesthesia thing. It's used as a, as an adjunct or as an anesthetic for surgeries and the like. It's been around for a long time. It's, it was a, it's an offshoot of uh, PCP, which we know mm -hmm. to be a, a drug of abuse. And right. the interesting thing that ketamine does is it, it, it uh, can vary in, um, strongly block uh, pain impulses. And in fact, in the 60s, uh, when this uh, was first being sort of developed for human use, 
it was first used in uh, soldiers in Vietnam. And the, uh, the reason they did was because they could administer this for people with battlefield injuries and it would uh, very effectively block their pain impulses from these from devastating injuries until they could get them mm -hmm. medevaced out to uh, uh, um, a place where they could get definitive care. Uh, but uh, going on from that, it went on to become uh, an anesthetic, but it's actually been developed as a nasal spray uh, for other indications, but uh, mm -hmm. people have uh, used it uh, for uh, mental health disorders, and uh, it's been used by uh, some headache clinicians as a uh, treatment for an acute treatment of, for migraine. Um, and then um, it's been an interesting process to see this evolve because there are some prospective studies that have been done, but they're very, very small and inconclusive. Uh, there are better studies, I understand, under under underway or soon to be started, and they can be found on clinicaltrials.gov. You can look up ketamine on that if you're interested in knowing about where they are being performed and and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them being done in Europe, uh, for example. Uh, but in this study, this was a, a, another one of these retrospective studies. It was done at a at a tertiary headache center, a very reputable headache center uh, in the U.S. And uh, what they did is they interviewed uh, patients and the, the population was uh, 242 subjects uh, that were screened and uh, uh, went through uh, the interview. And uh, they basically interviewed them about effectiveness and uh, quality of life and functionality and those kinds of things. And uh, I thought the one of the interesting things is that uh, the uh, median uh, number of monthly migraine days or headache days rather was uh, 30. So this tells yeah. you this is uh, uh, patients had this, it was, they were a chronic mm -hmm. daily, every day population right. from the jump. Yeah. And most of them, they, on average, they had tried four previous preventives. So this, these are your tertiary headache center population, which, yeah. Obviously, these are the patients that would be candidates for something controversial like uh, ketamine. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the patients you were using ketamine nasal spray, and uh, overall, they used up to six uh, sprays per day with a, a median uh, spray use of uh, 10 days per month. So this is fairly frequent use, but they weren't using it every day necessarily. Mm -hmm. And uh, about half the patients reported this to be very effective. And their quality of life was uh, considered to be much better uh, in about a third of the patients. About uh, two-thirds elected to continue to be uh, current uh, intranasal ketamine users, and about three-quarters of them had reported at least one adverse event. And these are usually nausea, uh, somnolence. Uh, sometimes there can be a um, hallucinogenic-type, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, psychedelic-type feeling. Uh, a little bit of a detachment uh, or, um, uh, you, you know, um, sense of being separated, being outside of your, out of your body or whatever, you know, some odd sensation like that. Right. Uh, but, but um, very, very few people found adverse events to be uh, bothersome enough that they would um, elect to discontinue it. Most of them continued in the study. Right. If they stopped, they didn't stop because of adverse events, it would have been more for a lack of treatment uh, success. Right, right. 
but somnolence, you use that word. I want to make sure everyone knows that means sleepiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it was pretty effective in this population and there were adverse events, but they weren't so bad that people thought it wasn't worth it um, because it seemed to be helping their pain in this group. So there is our uh, new intranasal ketamine data. We do have one more study that is not a um, a drug alert or a medication or device alert. It is just something super interesting. It is on weather. And since it is uh, summer and we have changing weather, I thought this was going to be fun to report. I personally am very triggered by weather changes. And I wasn't when I was younger. And I don't know if that's just a change for me, if it's because I was so sick when I was younger and already had daily migraine pain and everything else. So I didn't notice when things would get worse from weather, who knows, but I notice now I notice weather changes and we have this study that's super cool. Uh, (laughs) There, they used an app to analyze weather changes related to headache data. What types of things did they find related to weather that are triggers for us? Well, so I'm I'm from the lower Midwest and in, in uh, the St. Louis area, and uh, we have the most uh, topsy turvy weather cycles. We definitely have four seasons. We have four seasons sometimes in the same week, and yeah. uh, and it's uh, we have storms. We have you know the whole measure of things, and so we've made the observation in the clinic so many times. We have so many of our patients that say you know. I could be a weather forecaster because I can tell you, you know, what the weather's going to be based on my, my headache occurrence. And mm-hmm. um, that is a very common story. And many people like, are like you, they have that knowledge that their, their migraine attacks are associated with weather change, but proving it in a study has been the difficult thing. And I've been mm-hmm. part of some of these kinds of studies. And while we've been able to identify things like lightning strikes and things like that, that maybe indicative of turbulent weather that can be associated with migraine attacks, getting quality data to publish in a journal uh, has been, it's, it's, it escapes us for the, unfortunately for the most part, but the, this -hmm. study was done uh, by some Japanese researchers who who looked at uh, weather events and had patients track their, their headaches through the weather app. And uh, they had some very compelling data showing that, these uh, changes, uh, basically what they identified, there were like four ev- events that uh, seemed to be highly correlated with their migraine attacks. And these were low barometric pressure, barometric pressure changes. So mm-hmm. going from low to high or high to low, it didn't, uh, not specified one way or the other. I think patients right. report what's germane to them. And then higher humidity and uh, uh, rainfall activities were associated with increased number of of headache uh, occurrences. Um, As we said, the study was carried out in Japan. So, you know, I don't know if there are regional influences or population characteristics that might be pertinent to them, but not generalizable. But um, it's actually, it helped to have it in Japan because they, these researchers had uh, access to the weather data and they could match it up with their uh with the migraine uh diary data in the in the right. weather in their uh, migraine app and so um so anyway it's interesting it would be great to redo these this study in in different areas uh you know of the world to see if these results are generalizable um 
So I guess, uh, you know, your take home message would be for your migraine patients that have weather sensitive uh, phenomena, they, uh, headache phenomena, they should look for a place where uh, the bar barometric pressure doesn't vary very much and humidity yeah. is low and rainfall is uh, uh, rare, <laughs> rarer, probably somewhere like Colorado or something, don't you think? Uh, no, because you would think that, but our weather is ridiculous. It will change four times in a day from snow to sun to it's really bizarre and pretty miserable. And I sometimes wonder if the altitude adds a little trouble. Yeah. So I, I would not recommend coming here. <laughs> so anyways, well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This was a great episode. Had so much great to tell everyone, and we will be doing this again uh, next month with anything new that has come out. So stay tuned, everyone, and stay tuned for our weekly podcast and video cast. You will be hearing from Headwise again next week. Bye-bye, all. <laughs>